Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. I'm here today with Ramesh Bionis. Ramesh is a writer, yogi, and workshop leader. Currently residing in the United States, he lived in India and Nepal in the 1980s, learning directly from an enigmatic master of Tantra. He has practiced yoga and meditation for over 30 years and lectured on Tantra, yoga, and meditation in many countries. The co-founder of the Prama Institute, a holistic retreat center, he is also the director of the Prama Wellness Center, where yoga therapy, meditation, juice fasting, and Ayurveda are used to rejuvenate people's health and well-being. He lives and practices in an eco-village in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina in the United States, and he is also the author of two books on Tantra, Sacred Body, Sacred Spirit, and Tantra, The Yoga of Love and Awakening. So hello, Ramesh. Thanks so much for joining us. How are you this morning? Hi, Jacob. Thank you so much for having me. So it's a pleasure to talk to you. I just have been reading your books and, and really enjoying them. Uh, the practice and the philosophy and the history of Tantra is something that's very close to my heart and my own practice. So it's always, it's always a beautiful thing to discover a new uh, text on this uh, wide-ranging and fascinating tradition. So I would love to hear, just to get started, your own story. Uh, you've, been, As I mentioned in your uh, bio, you've been practicing for over 30 years, so this has been a long journey for you. And I would love to hear about that journey and, and especially how you sort of evolved into this practice or found this practice of Tantra. Yeah, um, it's actually over 40 years now. Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, um so it's been a been a long ride, as they say. Um, I um, encountered yoga and meditation in in Norway when I was living there in the seventies, in nineteen seventy four. Mm. And um, initially, I practiced on my own for a bit. And uh, during one of those practices, I had a very unique experience where these mantras mm. suddenly popped into my head. Oh wow! And um, I couldn't figure it out, you know, and I started repeating it because I heard other people were repeating mantras. And a few months later, a friend of mine who had met a Swami from India introduced me to his type of meditation, and I started practicing that for a while. And then eventually I met this Swami or Acharya, and um, he said, you know, I can give you initiation into the tantric yogic path. And, and I said, yes, I would love to do that. And uh, to my great surprise, the mantra that he introduced to me was very similar wow. to the one that popped into my head uh, a while back earlier. And this is literally something you had never heard before. It just came to you. Yeah, exactly. So, so, that, so the whole journey started out on a very mysterious note. And, um, and I, I felt you know, drawn into it. Uh, sort of compelled or propelled into it more than anything because prior to that I had been very uh, active politically I was mm. a communist and then I got dissolution with socialism and communism and mm. and got inspired to read Gandhi and uh, some of the Indian mystics so um, but I wasn't really drawn to India I never uh, met people that had been there or anything like that so this happened um, very mysteriously and and later on, you know, studying and, and practicing yoga and tantra, uh, I've come to learn that this is because of one's karma or one's samskaras, as we mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. 
that that we have these um, encounters, these uh, synchronistic encounters along the journey that uh, are just beyond our own individual egos. Wow. So, um, and then um, I, I was um, practicing, you know, for, for quite a while, diligently for, for many months, and, and then eventually I, I got into this path uh, full-time. Um, and this was, of course, many years before the yoga studios uh, and uh, at that time, there were gurus and ashrams, and uh, people lived in communities and communes and so on. Mm -hmm. So it was a different yoga scene at that time. Yeah. And I think in many ways, um, we were introduced to the old traditional yoga uh, more than today, because today most people's entryway is through hatha yoga or asana. And um, for me, meditation was primary. And asana was a preparation for deeper meditation. That's how we were taught. Right. And, uh, and that's how we practiced. Yeah, I mean, that's really what, um, when I was having the recent interview with um, Philip Goldberg, he, he mentioned that as well, you know, the, the difference between the 60s generation of practitioners and, and people who came to the path at that time it really the difference really is this difference between meditation and the physical practice which is you know interesting that it's been sort of a I'm, maybe it's inappropriate to say a reverse development but certainly you know according to the logic of the tradition it is a you know a preparatory path for deeper for a deeper practice of meditation so you know at least historically we've evolved kind of maybe one could say to a more shallower aspect of the practice from a deeper aspect of the practice or maybe some would disagree but it seems like you know it's 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 a it's a challenge now to get people interested in these deeper teachings mm -hmm. yes i i think you're right and of course this is a very uh, hotly debated issue um you know uh, what is yoga and uh, and what kind of practices are the best practices and so on but i think as you said from the traditional point of view yoga is uh, physical mental and spiritual and so the physical part of yoga is a gateway to the mental and the spiritual and um, and that is the way i guess we call uh, yoga holistic uh, and today the physical part is more emphasized, and I think that historically, this development started with Krishnamacharya and the lineage that mm -hmm. came from him, with Iyengar, and Desikachar and and Patabi Joyce, yeah. and from them, many of the American and European teachers uh, were taught, you know, that style of yoga, which was primarily physical and and uh, with some pranayama uh, thrown in. And I remember I was watching a video of uh, Iyengar once, and he said, I wished I had started meditation before I was 60. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it really struck me um, that, uh, that he would say that, because that to me showed this uh, departure, in a way, from the more traditional yoga that I was taught. Right. And um, and I think that now we're seeing that people are mostly practicing asanas, but at the same time there is a flourishing of interest 
into the deeper meditation techniques. There really just, is. Just a few days ago, I was giving an introduction to Ashtanga Yoga um, to uh, some students, and, uh, and Ashtanga Yoga as the Eightfold Path, rather than Ashtanga Yoga as, as the more physical practice. And, um, and I, was, uh, I asked some of the students, uh, how many of you practice dharana, you know, pratyahara, dhyana, and, and so on? And they said, well, we have heard of it, but we don't know what these practices are. Right, yeah. And, and so for me, uh, learning directly from the teachers in India and, and then uh, eventually traveling to India and spending almost three years there, these tra practices were um, emphasized and taught, but in an, in an initiatory setting rather than, you know, through a yoga studio or through uh, tapes and books and so on. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, it's inter it's interesting what you say because I, I think you're right in that um, you know going back to what you said about the flourishing now uh, and even though I did say most people are practicing asana, it seems like you know uh, maybe in some from from a certain perspective a devolution, but actually there is there is a sea change happening now, especially with regards to the tantric teachings um, and and you know teachers of Shaivism. I, I feel like we're well. First of all, the the scholarship and the knowledge around the original text is really only now starting to emerge with the work of people like you know Christopher Tompkins among others, and and so it's you know it's fascinating and it's beautiful, and we're realizing as you write in your own book that how tantric we really are, which is clearing up I think a lot of confusion about. Um, the origin of these teachings and 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 how you know some of this ancient some of these ancient texts translate to our contemporary practices, whereas before there, it was kind of shrouded in a lot of mystery. Nobody really understood it. So I'm wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about now, um, the, you know, what that is in terms of tantra being very much sort of the practice that we didn't know we were doing in a certain way. Right. So. Going back to Ashtanga Yoga, for example, so philosophically Ashtanga Yoga follows uh, Shankya Yoga, which came uh, sometime earlier. And depending on who uh, your source is, what the source is, the timing is, you know, the, varies. But from my teachers, Shankya philosophy came probably, you know, maybe five. To ten thousand, uh, five to thousand years, even before um, Buddha's time. Mm. So, so there was a, a long time of um, that philosophy being available, and Patanjali's philosophy follows in the Shankara tradition with the idea of, of Purusha and Prakriti, or Shiva and Shakti, as we call it in Tantra, or energy and consciousness. And um, in the Ashtanga Yoga tradition, there are different teachings that Patanjali talks about. Dhyan being the primary meditation technique and, um, and dharana is being a focus of concentration, pranayama, breathing exercises. And um, these techniques are very specifically taught in Tantra Yoga. So, for example, when I practice meditation, when I do my pratyahara, there are specific visualization techniques that helps the practitioner withdraw the sensory perception from the external world, from the body, 
and then eventually from the mind itself, from the thoughts and the emotions. Mm. So that is a preparatory process. And then combined with pranayama, which in meditation sometimes just means deep, slow, diaphragmatic breathing, other times it may be uh, practiced separately with the mantra. And there are different pranayama techniques in Tantra that are the Hatha Yoga pranayamas, which are mostly psychophysical, uh, such as, um, you know, the breath of fire and so on. But the deeper pranayama techniques, they always involve mantras and visualization and, and ideation. And so um, these techniques are tantric. And so when I think of Ashtanga Yoga, I think of Tantra. I cannot separate the two, which, which to many people, when I started, uh, for example, writing on Elephant Journal, people were shocked and outraged that I would say, <laughs> you know, that yoga was the same as Tantra. And, and we had, you know, so many discussions with um, many different people, many people that eventually became my friends. And, and then uh, it was interesting after a while, you know, the steam uh, settled, the <laughs> heated debate uh, settled down and we all you know, became closer and friends. Do you think that and was? Do you think that was that um, that resistance was based on the confusion about what tantra is, where most people are associating it with tantric sex? Is that why? Oh well, that yeah, most definitely that that was part of it. But but for those students that have uh, that have understood that that's uh, not the case, um, the more astute students of philosophy, even for them, it is difficult. And even today, you know. Uh, uh, some have called me, you know, a, a tantric triumphalist and, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, saying that, well, he has a lot of good things to say, but he thinks that tantra is everything and so on and so forth, which, which I don't. But um, I think it is important to emphasize that the Western world has been given one side of what yoga is, which is that it all came from the Vedas. Yes. And, for example, Philip Goldberg's book, which is fantastic, and I, I greatly admire him as a writer and as a person. Um, but I often joke and I said, you know, I say, uh, I would like to write American Tantra. Mm -hmm. Because um, the tantric um, inroad to yoga is as important if not more important than the Vedas. Yeah. And, the, and, the, and where the importance is, is in the practices. We say that Tantra is 99% practice and 1% theory. Mm. So, so what I am saying is that the yogic techniques were Tantric. Mm -hmm. um, what happened in India, which we can talk about um, later perhaps, was this... Um, commingling of these two strands of wisdom and religious traditions, the Vedic and the Tantric. Mm -hmm. And Tantra supplied the practices of the deep um, psyche and the, and the deep body, the subtle uh, yoga body practices of Kundalini and, and Koshas and Mantras. And the Vedas supplied rituals and philosophy and so on and so over time you had people that were steeped in the Vedic um, tradition and the tantric tradition combined 
And that's why later on it is difficult to separate the two. And in some ways that is not necessary. But it is important, I think, to understand that there is something called a tantric practice that is really underlying all of the core practices of yoga. Mm. For example, um, when um, when um, Mr. Broad from the New York Times came out with his book um, uh, on, on the, I think it was called The Science of Yoga, um, when he talks about the original Tantra, he was on fresh air with uh, Terry Gross, and he said that it came from a sex cult in the Middle Ages. No. Uh, a tantric sex cult, yes. <laughs> William, William Broad from the New York Times. And, uh, and I was laughing when I heard it because here you have a great scientist, scientific writer um, not doing his research properly. Right. So, um, so I think that uh, these things are important. Uh, and um, I think that um, it is easy for people to to have knee-jerk reactions to, you know, such statements. And, um, and I understand that because it is unusual to hear such uh, statements. But, the, but um, it is somewhat like um, looking at the American Constitution and thinking that it all came from uh, American white men when actually uh, Jefferson and, and, um, and many of the, the other great Americans were inspired by Native Americans, yeah, and uh, and this is often very forgotten forgotten yeah. in history. And similarly, the tantric contribution to yoga is often uh, forgotten or sidestepped. And, yeah, uh, it's a, it's always it's always interesting to me because it, every, every time we draw the beginning of a historical narrative, we always make an arbitrary decision. I mean, even going back to the the narrative about Western civilization, the the decision, you know, dating back the beginning of Western civilization to ancient Greece was a decision. It was like a very mm -hmm. like it was right. it was an imperial decision. It was like something that was made um, for particular political purposes. So, so it's interesting, you know, that what, what you're saying, because, uh, you know, there is a sense in which anytime we're, we're speaking about history, we always are making some kind of decision about origin and about what will and will not be, you know, circumscribed within what we understand to be, um, relevant. And so let's just get into that. Let's dive into exactly, it. Exactly. Exactly. So let's dive into it a little bit because, um, this is something that I think is really interesting about your work and it's a little bit radical because the scholarship, and we're going to talk about why that is in a minute, but the scholarship generally dates Tantra to the medieval period, but you mm -hmm. have a very, you have a very different approach to it. You say that Tantra is much older and, the, and, and you speak about it being distinct from the Vedic stream, whereas, you know, scholars might say that it, that Tantra somehow emerged from the Vedic stream later down the line. So do you want to just unpack that history maybe a little bit for the, for those who aren't aware and then kind of explain the difference between what the standard take is on this and then how you, what, you know, what you're carving out as an alternative point of view? Right. Okay. So, um, yeah, this is an important point, I think. And, um, I teach yoga history to, uh, yoga teacher students and, and in the beginning, I, I sort of, uh, you know, didn't spend that much time unpacking it. But over time, I realized that that is important. And so now what I do is I present yoga history 
uh, in uh, different sections or, or sort of time frames. I say yoga history could be a hundred years old, you know, starting with Krishnamacharya. It could be hundred and or fifteen hundred years old, you know, starting in the Middle Ages with the Tantric Renaissance period, or it could be you know, 2,500 years going back to Buddha's time, because Buddha was a yogi as well yeah. and, and was influenced by tantric teachers. Mm. Or it could even go further back. And so I, I actually uh, talk about yoga history uh, being six to 7,000 years old and not just, you know, 100 or 1,500 years old. Mm. So it is, of course, from a scholarly, scholarly point of view, difficult and problematic because most Western scholars rely on texts. And when you go back in prehistory, there are very few texts available. And so, um, of course, many will say that this is conjecture when you don't have a piece of pottery or a text to show for and to prove that what you're saying is true, then um, it is very difficult. However, there are, you know, different artifacts. For example, we have the, what is called the Pashupati Nut Seal that uh, goes back uh, 2,500 or more uh, before Christ of a yogi uh, animal-like uh, 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 yogi sitting in what appears to be uh, Guraksha Asana, a very advanced Banda position. Mm. And uh, scholars have debated, uh, you know, what the significance of this figure is and what the origin is and what even the position and um, so on. So, but this all points to the fact, as you said earlier, that when we talk about history, there are different stories based on your own perspectives, based on context. Yeah. And, and so, so this is important. And I think that what I'm trying to do is in part to pro simply provide another context and say that here are some other possibilities. Uh, you know, when we're young and, uh, uh, you know, idealistic, we tend to, uh, you know, overstep our bounds sometimes. And I, I, I certainly done that uh, <laughs> plenty. And, uh, and, but as I, you know, get older, you get a little bit more... Um, uh, your perspective widens and, and you realize not everybody is seeing it the same way as you do. And so it is important uh, to note that there are different perspectives and yeah. different traditions and different ways of being. For example, um, if you read some of the books by Allah Daniel Lu, for example, a French uh, person, a musician, musicologist who lived in India for 40-some years, mm. was a good friend of Rabindranath Tagore. His books talk about the Shaiva tradition and the Tantric tradition being the, the core of yoga and being the, the source of yoga. Mm. He talks about Buddha traveling with Tantric masters. Uh, one was named Gosala, that... Mahavira and Buddha. Mahavira became the founder of the Jain religion in India. Mm. And, and so these were both students of Gosala, and he was a tantric master. And, and so, so when you read these, uh, these kinds of stories, then you ask yourself, well, how did you know, Daniel Lu fi find out about this? Well, he found out about it in many texts that have yet to be translated into English. 
he found out about it through stories and through the through the many stories of the Puranas and so on. So, because yoga is largely an oral tradition, uh, we cannot uh, just uh, ignore the different stories that are part of the tradition. Uh, because I think it is important for us as Westerners to honor the oral tradition as well. Right. Even though we need to rely on texts for, for sure, and that is important, but at the same time, we need to open it up into this larger cultural uh, area mm. and bring in the stories and the, and the, and the culture at large. And so, uh, so, so that's, I think, part, part of what I've been doing is, is to do that, to tell these stories, to share the possibility that there is a different framework and a different uh, perspective. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very it's a very fresh perspective, and I was cer- certainly one of the. I mean, I feel like I it, I've heard of it before, but until I read your book, I hadn't seen it laid out, and it was it's very, it's really interesting. So one of the things that you mention, I mean, you sort of draw this strong distinction between. Um, the Vedic and the Tantric. So you've you've touched on it a little bit, but I would love for you to just kind of uh, maybe elaborate a little bit more on maybe why you, uh, you know you see uh, Vedic Vedic teachings are really more, or there's a within the Vedic stream there's more of a patriarchal focus, and within the the Tantric stream stream there's a more matriarchal focus. So how it how is Tantra matriarchal, and how is how are the Vedas, or how is the Vedic stream patriarchal? Okay, so yeah, so that that's one part of it. But um, uh, le- yeah, let me get back to that. What I think is of uh, foremost importance is that the Vedic tradition. When we speak about the Vedic tradition, it is important to make uh, a distinction, mm-hmm. and that is between the four Vedas, mm-hmm. the, the early religious texts of India, and the Vedantic period which is often termed the fifth Veda. Yeah. When, when Goldberg and other scholars talk about the Vedas, when Deepak Chopra talk about the Vedas, he's talking about Vedanta. Yeah. He's talking about what we would say is uh, the fifth Vedas, the Vedantic teachings and the, uh, and the Bhagavad Gita and the different Upanishads. Right. These are philosophical texts that were produced by yogis. And so, so uh, my teacher said, well, he, you know, he said once, he said, uh, what did these yogis practice? These yogis who produced these great scriptures, the Upanishads, they practiced Tantra. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> they did not sit in front of a fire, uh, cutting the head of a goat, sacrificing it to the gods in heaven, which is very much part of the Vedic tradition, the, the Vedic sacrificial rites, or pour ghee, you know, over um, yeah. a stone. So this is important to, to look into this deeply. So that is one important uh, uh, distinction. Going back to the patriarchal and the matriarchal, now we're talking about history because... The Vedic people, and again, this is incredibly controversial, and uh, and and <laughs> many people, you know, for example, um, uh, many of the well-known scholars in America, tantric scholars, even when they read my book, one of them said, you know, 
I love your writings, but this history stuff, I just, you know, I can't deal with, you know. <laughs> uh, I, I just don't agree at all and, and, and so on and so forth. And, um, and so, um, and that is fine, I, and I understand that. But there is this other perspective, and when you travel to India, when you meet the tantric masters and the teachers, they share this part of the history, and so I, I just couldn't avoid it. I was soaked up into it, and I, I feel like I, you know I have to tell that side of it. So um, the Vedic people came from the outside of India a long time back in history, and again, this is controversial. You have people. Uh, there, it is so controversial, in fact, that I have been part of discussions online where uh, one of the uh, participants uh, became afraid that uh, he, they were going to hurt his family because these were fanatic Hindus that didn't like this perspective uh, that the Vedic people came from the outside. And so, wow. so this is very hot stuff. And, it, and it, when you go to India, it becomes complicated too because uh, of the different um, cultural and... Um, and religious dogmas surrounding all this. But the Vedic people, according to um, historians, came into India either about 2,000 to 1,500 years before Christ. This is uh, what most scholars believed happened. But uh, George Feuerstein, great yogic writer, and David Frawley, fantastic writers and scholars, they came out with a book uh, in 1996 called uh, In Search of the Cradle of, of uh, Human Civilization, in which they say it is not possible that the Vedic people came uh, at that time because there, are no, there is no proof that they destroyed any civilization. Rather, there is ample proof that the Indus Valley civilization was destroyed by uh, droughts and so on. So I read that book, and... Uh, and I was reminded then that my teacher said that the, the Vedic Aryans didn't come at that time. That is correct. They came much earlier. Mm. And, and about, I think about 10, 12 years ago, I was watching a PBS program about Dr. Spencer Wells, uh, a geneticist from Stanford, who basically confirmed through the study of genetics what my guru had said, which was that the Vedic Aryans came to India about 5,000 uh, before Christ. Mm. So, so here we have a, a very uh, patriarchal culture, mostly men in the beginning, warriors and, and cattle herders, coming into India and meeting a culture that, of course, just like our world today, was stratified and had different levels of urban and and uh, civilization, and, and some were very primitive, and others were, were more uh, highly advanced um, scientifically and, and culturally. So they're coming into India and meeting a, a predominantly matriarchal culture, and, and also a culture that already at that time, according to the, to the stories and, and the histories that I was uh, introduced to, already practiced yoga. And so you had this clash of cultures, and uh, one Vedic, one uh, yogic or tantric or Shaiva-oriented, and uh, and there's this uh, clash between them, 
And over time, over thousands of years, these two cultures, just like here in America, uh, where the white people came and, and uh, confronted and subjugated the Native Americans. Uh, yeah. Similar things happened in India. And so um, from this confluence of cultures, the culture of India and the culture of yoga, uh, the culture of the, the Vedas, uh, and uh, later on what we now call Hinduism uh, came. Mm. And so uh, when people say that Hinduism uh, is the originator of yoga, uh, we can say, yes, it, to some extent that's true, but uh, really if we want to stick to the facts, it is not true because Hinduism is not very old. It is at the most a thousand years old and really didn't really come into vogue uh, before three, four hundred years ago with the British invasion, when the British actually tried to sort out what this uh, strange culture of India was and and came to realize that it would be much easier to call them all Hindus yes, than yeah. to deal with this, uh, you know, um, complicated mess of different religions. Yeah, well, the West, very, uh, they, the West likes categories, right? They like to be able to put things into boxes so they can that's, that's study right. them. Yeah. Um, so that's all very interesting. Now I want to shift a little bit now and talk about um, a little more the specifics of of Tantra. And you, uh, you know, as I mentioned before we started recording, uh, we've had a few uh, Shaivism Tantra podcasts and, and I, and I'm happy to have many because I think it's such a beautiful tradition. And again, it's, you know, as we've been discussing something that's, um, you know, just reemerging as really a significant part of our history and tradition. But I haven't, we haven't talked too much in the podcast about the four, uh, what you call the four pillars um, uh, I don't know if you were, use the word pillar, but that sort of came to me. Four pillars of Tantra, which are uh, mantra, yantra, guru, and diksha. And so I would love for you to just kind of maybe give a little lesson on and uh, overview of those four pillars for us. Okay, okay. Yeah, I actually call them the four sacred pillars of Tantra, so you're right on there. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so... Diksha means initiation, um, and so let's let's start there. And I and I actually wanted to start with a story because when I was living in Nepal in in, in the ashram there, studying tantra, I ha had a friend who um, lived in the village nearby. He was a shopkeeper, and uh, eventually he became interested in learning meditation, and he got initiated into tantra. And uh, started practicing diligently, and uh, and I was very happy, uh, you know, to to see that. But then what happened was, a few months later, he disappeared. I couldn't find him. I asked the neighbors, you know, what happened to my friend, and they they didn't know. And eventually, I found out that he had been brought back to his village, told by his parents and family that you better put that sacred thread on. Or we will, uh, you will be an outcast in our family. Wow. Uh, and what that meant is that in tantra, there is no caste system, and where uh, you know the caste system is uh, still prevalent in India. And um, this is a Vedic tradition. And um, but in tantra, when you take initiation in tantra, if you're a Brahmin, you have to remove your Brahmin thread. You have to cut it. Oh wow! To renounce your caste. 
and basically say, I, I, am, I have no more, uh, I'm no more um, bound to my caste. I'm free. And, of course, that uh, was a disgrace to his family. And so I'm just telling that story to illustrate, uh, again, the difference between the tantric and the Vedic tradition. Yeah, it sounds much more uh, egalitarian, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and also, in the Vedas, you have, uh, you know, some uh, injunctions, like, uh, from the Book of Manu that is very uh, important in the Vedic tradition. And in the Hindu tradition, you have sayings, like, if a woman hears the Vedas, you, you need to pour molten, uh, you know, lead into her ear so that oh she can God. never hear it again. And so you have many, you know, the way that uh, women were treated as widows and they couldn't remarry and so on. These are all part of these, uh, these Vedic injunctions. So, so uh, and this shocked me when I lived in India to see this, uh, to experience that. However, um, my point is not to... Uh, to speak ill of Indian culture or, or people of India because it is such a beautiful culture and such a, an incredibly sophisticated culture on the spiritual and the religious level. And that, that is really, um, yeah, that is important to emphasize. Yeah. So, so Diksha, the initiation part, is very, very important, which is a process of meeting your teacher if the teacher is the guru, that is great. But the teacher doesn't have to be a guru. And um, because the teacher will transfer uh, the energy, all, uh, all the guru's wisdom and shaktipat uh, through the initiation, through the use of a mantra. And a mantra in tantra is very important. Mantra means... Man means mind and tra means to liberate. So a mantra is a sonic sound that helps liberate the mind. Mm. And when that mantra is imparted, sometimes there are dramatic, um, you know, experiences. Uh, some people, they uh, go into ecstasy. I have seen people fall over just uh, when the mantra is whispered in their ear. Wow. Uh, so... So the mantra initiation is very powerful and very important. Um, and uh, then the yantra part is basically yantra is a mandala or, or a design that is uh, important as a form of meditation. For example, the different chakra lotuses are yantras. You have, uh, for example, uh, the triangle forms in Tantra. In the, in the Sri Yantra, for example, you have multiple triangles symbolizing the three gunas, um, the, the three uh, aspects of nature, um, Sattva Guna, or the peaceful, and uh, Raja Guna, the energetic, and Tama Guna, the static. These three principles of nature are formed into a triangle. And then you have triangles uh, put together, such as in the six-pointed star, the star of David in the Jewish tradition. But that is also a tantric symbol, and it may have come to Israel from India. This is what I, I believe happened. Mm -hmm. uh, so these yantras are important as uh, forms of meditation and, and uh, forms of focus uh, in, in tantric meditation. 
And then lastly, the guru is very, very important um, to have a, a true master. And um, in Tantra, we distinguish between uh, a kaula, which is a practitioner who over time is able to raise his or her uh, kundalini force, kundalini energy through the chakras, and and a mahakaula, which is a guru or a great practitioner who is able to raise the kundalini of other people as well. And so the mantras used in tantra are infused with sacred uh, energy uh, when the guru goes into deeper states of mind and then infuses the mantra with uh, special sounds and and frequencies. However, these mantras are also based on the Sanskrit uh, alphabet. Each sound in the Sanskrit alphabet corresponds to different propensities or vrittis. So in, in the human body we have 50, mainly 50 vrittis, and each letter in the Sanskrit alphabet corresponds to one of these vrittis. So when we use the Sanskrit mantras, we are literally vibrating from within. We are, we are singing from within. <laughs> uh, and, and I remember when I encountered um, the chanting of mantras for the first time, I thought, wow, this is incredible. This, this is a different language. Yeah. Uh, I was very inspired and vibrated just by hearing it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's very interesting. It's uh, it's almost like you're saying in this description of Sanskrit that it is the, it's like the, <clears throat> the vibratory vessels of our embodiment in a certain way. You know, like map yes. this this idea of, of the Sanskrit alphabet being in a in a way mapped onto our body, and when we chant them, we are vibrating a, an aspect of our embodiment. It's it's a very, it's kind of it's a radical idea. This this mm-hmm. idea because we you know we in our Western, you know, world, we generally think of language, I've talked about this before, but we think of language as representational, not vibrational. So it's such a, it's right. such a different way of thinking or a different way of experiencing language. Yes, beautifully said. Yes, I, I agree. I, exactly. And, 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 and this is especially important when we combine the chant, uh, such as in Kirtan, with silent meditation and this combination is very very important as a practice you know uh, when you go to a krishna das concert you know he takes you into deep levels of consciousness and ecstasy while singing and chanting but if you can spend as many hours as you did chanting in meditation afterwards you will have an incredibly deep uh, meditation. And, and that is something I highly recommend to people, to do a lot of chanting, um, you know, in kirtan, and then sit down and do meditation afterwards. Yeah. The meditation will be very, very, very deep and, and profound. Wow. Yeah, that's a beautiful offering. And I think, you know, I think many people, it's, there are some, there, I, I meet people who are very in, uh, engaged with chanting, and then there are many people who are a bit averse because I don't think that they really gather or uh, have experimented with this idea that that, that practice could actually shift you and in, in, in place you in a position where you could have such a profound meditation. So, you know, thank you for offering that. 
Um, so I want to talk specifically, actually, about two things, Guru and Diksha, because I feel like these are maybe the most challenging parts of the practice for for us as, as Westerners. You know, initiation, um, it, it's something that I think a lot of people have their, a hard time wrapping their head around because it feels elitist. It feels like it's not accessible. And, of course, we're moving into this, you know, cultural milieu of everything's open source, everything's easily mm-hmm. accessed. And so the idea that someone should need to be initiated before they would be um, uh, before they would be allowed to engage with a certain kind of knowledge is very is very hard for some people to swallow. So what is the philosophy behind Diksha? Like what, why should, why does someone need to be or should be initiated in order to really engage deeply with these teachings? Mm-hmm. Yeah, wonderful question. Yes, it, it is, um, <laughs> it's, it's not an easy one uh, in Western culture. And I, and I think that, first of all, I, I want to say that the skepticism of the West is uh, important. I think it is uh, relevant. I think uh, there has been uh, many um, problems associated with gurus. Um, there has been, um, you know, many times when gurus have not acted um, yes. ethically, <laughs> and, so on. and 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 so. In a sense, this is uh, the the gurus have created their own problems uh, right. in many regards. So I think that that skepticism is is important. I also want to emphasize that it is not necessary to have a guru. Mm-hmm. It is not necessary to go to India uh, to practice or to do meditation. Um, however, when you find uh, a true guru, um, it helps. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it 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 helps, and so I, I guess one way to put it is that the process of diksha and initiation is a refinement of the practice, and I think that we need to uh, to realize that the yogis in India, those that became masters and and great gurus. They were, uh, as someone said, Einstein's of consciousness. Mm. They were people in a different league. Uh, yes, we have great scientists. Yes, we have great artists, unparalleled musicians. But we also have great uh, intuitionalists, great scientists of the mind and the spirit. And that is something we have been lacking in Western culture, at least uh, recently. We haven't seen many of them in, in our culture. And that is why I think Emerson and Thoreau yeah. fell over backwards when they encountered the Bhagavad Gita and these scriptures coming out of India because they, they were seeing uh, a knowledge and a wisdom expressed in such a refined language and, and depth of understanding that they hadn't seen in the West. And, yeah. and, and, and if we want to talk about American yoga history, as Goldberg stated so eloquently, we need to go back to those guys. Mm. So, um, so yes, this is a problem. Uh, this is a controversial issue, and it is uh, a difficult issue. But in the best of circumstances, it is um, something that um, is uh, in tantric 
circle considered uh, a grace or a gift to encounter uh, a real master and, and a real teacher. And, um, and they do exist, and uh, they are rare. There are not uh, that many of them um, as, as, um, as part of uh, history and, and the tradition itself. So, so again, um, I think that um, it is not necessary to learn about Tantra and Yoga, uh, but it is beneficial, I think, in a deeper sense. It is beneficial to have a great teacher and, yes. and, a, and a guru. So um, uh, when you were talking about Einstein, being an Einstein of consciousness, I like that idea, Einstein of consciousness. I'm, I'm writing it down. Um, um, <laughs> because I think it's a great way to sort of think about it. And, of course, you know, the, the way I like, the way, the, one of the reasons why I like it is that Einstein of consciousness implies that, okay, we're, you know, these are people who have a depth of understanding, but they're still human. You know, Einstein was still a human being with flaws, and, you know, he had the capacity to do, you know, whatever. But right. he had a certain kind of knowledge. And so, but I think that one of the ways that people perceive gurus is that, if they are to arrive at these sort of supreme levels of consciousness, they shouldn't be performing any kind of bad actions. They shouldn't, you know, which is why they receive such, you know, um, receive such slack and, uh, you know, appropriately so when they've engaged in, 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 in the, you know, in recent and past scandals. So uh, I'm, I don't know if I'm approaching my question in the most articulate way, but I'm just wondering, does enlightenment or becoming an Einstein of consciousness not necessarily entail a kind of, um, I don't know, a, a heightened sense of ethics. I mean, is are those mutual? Are those separate things? Like, is that a, is that a separate aspect of awakening? This becoming an Einstein of consciousness and then starting to kind of evolve ethically to a more, I don't know, one would say expansive um, heart or expansive um, mm -hmm. integrated awareness. Wow, wonderful. Yeah, wonderful point. Um, I, I think that um, ethics is important, very much important. And, and in Ashtanga Yoga, in the Eightfold Path, Yama Niyama is the foundation. And, and when you look at the lives of people like Ramana Maharshi, um, you know, um, and, and, and yogis like that... Um, Ramakrishna, Vivekananda, they were uh, very ethical people. They were grounded in a deep sense of ethics. Mm -hmm. and, um, and at the same time, when you compare Vivekananda to Ramana Maharshi, Vivekananda was an intellectual. He wrote books. He gave uh, roaring, roaring speeches. Um, uh, whereas Ramana Maharshi sat quietly and hardly talked at all. And uh, so they had different samskaras, they had different karma. So we are all different. But I think that even on a human level, even on a psychological level, a very deep refinement that enables people to act in a very deep, ethical way is possible. I think that there are examples of these people in uh, history, uh, in the history of human humanity. However, they are rare beings. So yeah. yes, 
many gurus, many so-called gurus, have flaws and, and are, are imperfect. But that doesn't mean that they have the capacity to be at least part-time uh, an Einstein of consciousness. Uh, it doesn't mean that they don't have special powers of clairvoyance and, and deep insights and, and know a thing or two about the science of mantras and so on. So it, it is very true that, and I think important that we uh, see it that way. At the same time, it is equally important to realize and to accept that having that kind of knowledge does not mean you have the right to abuse someone or, or to uh, sexually or, or, uh, or in any other way. So, um, so we need to look at you know the whole picture. You know, if one of these uh, so-called gurus make a mistake, that doesn't mean that all of his teachings are useless or valueless. But it, but it definitely means that uh, he has some issues to work on. Yeah. yeah. However, however, I think as I said earlier, there are beings that um, that are beyond those kinds of um, petty uh, <laughs> problems. And, and that they have integrated themselves uh, on, on a, both the physical, mental, and spiritual level. You know, for example, Ramana Maharshi didn't practice Hatha Yoga. He didn't need to practice Hatha Yoga. Mm. So again, uh, you have beings, Nisargadatta, you know, uh, another giant, uh, you know, guru who lived a very simple life in an apartment in, in India and saw students from all over the world. Um, people like that, they uh, they are not uh, so much into the physical part of yoga because yoga to them is the union with the deeper consciousness. Mm. And um, yeah, so this is a, a very interesting topic, uh, Jacob, and uh, and an important one. And then yeah, yeah. So what you're saying actually is le- le- segues well into my next question, which is really about these deeper practices, namely meditation. And of course, we've been talking about meditation as being, you know, um, um, obviously extremely important to this practice. But there was something that you had said in a recent Facebook post that really resonated with me because it echoed something that I had also heard from my teacher, Paul Muller. Um, uh, and, I, and I don't want to quote him or anything, but, you know, uh, of course, I, I might have heard it differently. But the idea was that... Uh, uh, or the observation is that, you know, people are, you go through teacher trainings to teach asana, they, you know, there is, there is, we're developing a sophistication around, um, around, you know, f- teaching physical asana practitioners. And, uh, and of course, there's a lot of, you know, grossly undertrained yoga teachers out there, but are asana teachers out there, but, but generally the tide is moving towards greater sophistication, but not so much at the level of meditation. In fact, there's a, there's a sense in which, or a spirit, a sense in which like meditation is often, uh, spoken about as being something that's like very personal, you know, it's sort of like whatever floats your boats type of thing, you know, just pick what works for you. And what seems to be lost in this is just in the sense that there's a technology of the body that works in uh, asana practice, or there are technologies of the body, not to say that there's only one. There are also technologies of meditation, are there not? And so you you wrote something um, 
that resonated a little bit with this on your Facebook post about how, you know, why is it such, I'm reading it now, why is it such a big deal to point out that there is a kind of yoga, a a deeper spiritual kind of yoga that is not so commonly practiced in yoga studios in the West? Why do so many yogis, when they want to learn deeper meditation, become Buddhists, simply because they find more competent meditation teachers in Buddhist sanghas? Um, So... Yeah, so I, that's not completely related to the question I'm asking, but do you see this issue as well with with um, with individuals um, not approaching meditation with the same kind of um, attention to sophistication as, as we're starting to see related to the more physical practices? Yes, I, I think that's true, um, simply because... There isn't a culture um, around meditation here in in the way that uh, we have around yoga asana practice. Yeah, uh, there, we are, we are lacking competent teachers basically, and um, and so I think it's it's a matter of time. I think that um, the yoga culture today in in the West is mostly oriented around asana practice and some pranayama practice, and maybe. You know, chanting a little bit and 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 meditating for a few minutes uh, on the breath and so on. These are very simple, but also uh, very valuable practices. However, as you point out, there are so many uh, practices in tantra and yoga that are not available uh, in the West simply because. Uh, you don't have as many of these teachers as you have yoga studios. Right. So so. You know, uh, I, for example, practice six different meditations. Um, wow. You know, uh, and so there, one of them is, pra- is a pranayama practice. Another one is a meditation on, on the different chakras, visualization and, and mantra uh, recitation. And, and another is uh, visualization and, and using uh, the mantras of the chakra. To har- one is... Um, about controlling the different chakras. Another one is about harmonizing the chakras. And and then the sixth lesson is a dhyana practice, which is common in both uh, what we would call Hindu Tantra or, and also in Buddhist Tantra. Mm. And this is another interesting thing that when you go deeper into Buddhist Tantra and Hindu Tantra, the, the, the differences are blurred. They're very, very similar which again point to the same original uh, source. Wow. So, but uh, yes, that, and that's why I mentioned that so many yogis uh, who like to practice deeper meditation, they end up uh, becoming Buddhists because that's where they found, find you know, many good teachers. Yeah. And, and I think that uh, what we are lacking in, in America today are competent um, teachers in, in meditation. Mm. Uh, and uh, however, I hope that it's just a matter of time before the, before that changes. Yeah, it seems to be. You know, it definitely seems that there's, as we mentioned before, there's a lot of people like yourself and and people like the other Shaivite teachers, Christopher Wallace and Christopher Tompkins and Paul Muller, who are you know through the use of the one of the good things about the internet is that these teachings are able to get out there in a way that ha- hasn't happened before and of. And also the the emergence of more tantric texts being translated. It's all very it's all very good news. It seems. Um, mm-hmm. So yes. so one of the last the maybe one of the last questions I have or the last major question I have 
is, you know, you live in an eco-village in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, which sounds absolutely beautiful. You told me that you, uh, before we started, that you have how far, how far of a view in all directions? Uh, not in all directions, but uh, out my front porch, um, about 10 miles, probably, maybe 15 miles, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. So mm. you, um, you are an ecologically minded person. So I'm curious, how does Tantra, the, the philosophy of Tantra, relate to that ecological outlook? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is another um, issue that I'm very much interested in. And I think, um, again, uh, something beautiful and deep that Tantra has to offer to the West and to people that practice spirituality, this idea that this world is sacred. That's why my first book was called Sacred Body, Sacred Spirit. Because in Tantra, there is this idea that everything is consciousness. You know, for example, in the Yama Niyamas, we have uh, Brahmacharya as one of the the tenets. And uh, in Tantra, Brahmacharya does not mean sexual restraint as it often is translated uh, it actually, Brahma means consciousness, pure consciousness. Charya means to move. And so Brahmacharya means to move with a feeling of consciousness, or with a feeling of the divine. Huh. So, so in other words, whenever we, we act in the world, Brahmacharya means to have the feeling that what we are touching, what we are seeing, what we are eating is Brahma, is consciousness. And that is the true spirit of, of Brahmacharya. And, and so from that depth of knowledge within Tantra, it's often called uh, honey knowledge, Madhuvidya, uh, the knowledge of honey, mm. which means that this world is sacred. And if this world is sacred, we need to treat it with uh, reverence and in a, in a graceful manner. And, and that in a Western term in a scientific term uh, translates into ecology and uh, being an environmentalist so um, we are not very good at that yet but uh, (laughs) we're trying (laughs) Uh, we're we're trying and and again you know uh, uh, there's another saying uh, in Tantra or sort of a translation of Tantra which is subjective approach through objective adjustment We we are we are approaching the divine subjectively, internally. When we open our eyes, we need to deal with this objective world and we need to adjust to it. Wow. And, and in adjusting to this world, we make many mistakes, uh, but uh, hopefully we are learning from the mistakes and we try to improve. And, and I think that um, from that depth of understanding, um, we can develop a beautiful, and which has been developed in many ways, a beautiful ecological worldview to try to live in harmony uh, with our surroundings, with nature, and, and with people. Mm. Um, and, and this is, I think, crucial for our civilization to do that. So, so from Tantra, I think we can uh, learn uh, how to walk our talk and... Uh, and, and walk more lightly uh, on the planet. Wow. Wow, that, uh, that translation um, of Brahmacharya, is, I think, is one of the most beautiful and refreshing translations I've ever heard. You know, people are always trying to get around it <laughs> in some yeah. way. But I love yeah, that. Because, yeah, because, you know, 
uh, it's it's like um, yeah, you can you can enjoy good food, but you can't enjoy good sex and be spiritual at the same time. You know, it's yeah, you know. Um, so yeah, this is a problem, and I think again, um, an issue pointed out or, or an issue that um, points to the fact that uh, we, we could call it Vedic or or priestly, I would say. Perhaps it is not right to call it a Vedic influence, but at least a priestly influence mm-hmm. that some somewhere along uh, the road of history someone changed that understanding uh, and uh, and I and I bet that was a priest uh, or or someone in that capacity yeah um, yeah so um that makes sense yeah however of course you know in tantra and in yoga there are celibates as well so so um that is also important to to acknowledge and to realize that the path of the celibate is is also uh, I- important yeah and, and a valuable path as well. So can you, um, one thing actually, when you mentioned Brahmacharya and Brahma, one thing I did notice about your book, and you explain it, um, but at first it was a little bit, um, uh, I wasn't quite sure because, you know, Brahma in, in the, the popular Hindu pantheon is the, the creating, the creator, you know, set next to Vishnu and, and, and Shiva. Mm-hmm. And then, and then Brahman is is generally this. So when I first started reading it, I was sort of thinking, oh, he means Brahman. But then you explain that you don't actually mean that, and and that Brahma comes from uh, a specific understanding. So can you explain that a little bit? What what that right. piece of Brahma right. comes from? Yeah. Well, actually, it's 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 really a linguistic uh, uh, term. Some some people say, "Oh, you're not spelling, uh, you know, Brahman," so so you're confusing uh, everyone. And and uh, yes, that is true. But it's it's basically a linguistic issue. You can you can use Brahman or Brahma for uh, for the same uh, meaning, the same which is cosmic consciousness uh, or the divine. Okay. However, sometimes um, in uh, Hindu literature, there's the distinction between Brahman as being cosmic consciousness. Uh, and Brahma, which is uh, the god uh, Brahma, uh, and you know the, the deity. So, but you don't mean the deity. No, I don't. Okay. Uh, I, I mean that the deity is also Brahma. That, <laughs> that's what I mean. Yeah. I in other words, yeah. To to go back to the idea. So, yeah, I think that um, you know, in tantra there is um, deity yoga as well, which is um, and Ramakrishna was one of the great gurus that um, practice deity yoga mm-hmm. but with the understanding that the deity is, is is the gateway to consciousness just like a mantra is a gateway to consciousness just like having a physical guru doesn't mean that the physical guru's existence is brahman's his physical body is brahman it they are gateways right, right. And, and so that as wilbur ken wilbur would say Brahman is the ground of all being. Mm. Uh, cosmic consciousness is the ground of all being. Wow. And then from Brahman, so Brahman has, uh, or Brahma has two aspects, Shiva and Shakti, or Purusha and Prakriti. Purusha is consciousness and Prakriti is energy. Mm-hmm. And Prakriti is the creator, the mother of creation. Uh, just like Sophia in early Christian philosophy mm. was the creator, 
the mother of creation. And so through the binding of consciousness, uh, the world is created uh, through the help of Prakriti or, or Shakti. And then you have the expressions of the three gunas and then the different elements, the five elements, you know, uh, space, uh, um, space, sound, uh, sorry, <laughs> uh, um, space, air, fire, water, and earth. Yeah. And, and these elements, and then they combine, uh, create, you know, in, in Ayurveda, the different doshas in Ayurveda, pitta, vata, and kapha. Mm. So, so, Tantric philosophy explains creation in, in a very beautiful way, and, and we see the same philosophy used in Ayurveda as well. Wow, wow. Wow, well, this has been such a beautiful discussion, and I'm so happy um, we were able to cover almost all of my points or all of my questions today. So thank you so much, Ramesh. Um, so lastly, I just want to end on maybe giving you an opportunity to share what you're working on, if you want to share your website or if any, any projects you have coming up that you might want people to uh, be aware of. Okay. Um, well, uh, the website is prama.org p-r-a-m-a dot org and that is where I work and um, and if people want to get in touch with me they, they can through that website uh, I I've written two books one is Sacred Body Sacred Spirit and the other one is uh, Tantra um, The Yoga of Love and Awakening and both are available on online on Amazon and um, um, this, this book on Tantra was um, published in India through Hay House, and I have the American rights, so I'm, I'm going to republish that with a new edition uh, pretty soon. So oh, excellent. People can look out for that as well. Okay, awesome. And so, then if, if anybody wants to find out about your workshop schedule, if you are um, uh, teaching in their area, is that generally on your website if you, if you are traveling? Uh, I, I actually don't do that many workshops um, outside of my work here. Okay. Uh, I don't do that much traveling. Um, I might be at the Love and Light Festival in um, coming up uh, soon, um, so I might have a workshop there. Mm -hmm. I think that's outside of Washington, D.C., and Krishna Das and many other uh, great uh, artists are going to be there. Oh, and amazing. Yoga teachers, yeah. Amazing. I love Krishna Das. I was just at a benefit last week for the Nalanda Institute, and, uh, and, and Krishna Das was playing. It was really wonderful. Yes, yes. I had never seen him in, uh, it was such a, that was the first time I'd had an intimate, it was more just a benefit, so it was a very intimate setting. It was really nice to... Very nice. So close. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, yes, thank you so much, Ramesh. This has been a really interesting conversation, and um, and uh, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. And I'll speak with you soon. Oh, thank you so much, Jacob. It, it was wonderful. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. All right. Bye bye. Bye. Well, everyone, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ramesh Bionis. If you'd like to hear more about Ramesh and his teachings and his uh, institute and wellness center, go to prama.org. That's P-R-A-M-A dot org.
And as usual, if you are enjoying these interviews, please think about leaving us a review on iTunes. You can do that through your smartphone or iPhone app, uh, iTunes app. So um, we'd very much appreciate your support in that way. It helps to push the the podcast in front of other eyes. So thank you so much. And until next time, friends, bye-bye.